From PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The discovery of a new species of algae in the Persian Gulf might offer a way to help coral reefs stressed by rising sea temperatures and pollution. Coral reefs are by no way doomed, so corals try to fight back and they try to adjust to the changing environment and they have a higher capacity to do so than we had previously thought, but this will not be enough. We look at other measures we might take to preserve these ocean treasures. Also, meltwater from glaciers is key to hydropower in the Pacific Northwest. Having glaciers provides stability to our water supply. So if you get into mid-late July and that snow is melted out of the mountains, uh, if it weren't for glaciers, our stream flow would drop pretty dramatically. But now the glaciers are melting. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Today we have some good news, as well as some bad and definitely ugly, and it all has to do with algae, sort of. So let's start with the good, and it's good news for coral reefs, which are in trouble in many spots around the world. Overfishing and pollution aren't helping, but the big challenge seems to be shifting water temperatures, which can drive out the algae that reefs depend on for food from photosynthesis, leaving the reefs unhealthy or dead and bleached a ghostly white. Now science has discovered a species of algae in the Persian Gulf that doesn't seem to mind high or low ocean temperatures. Jorg Wiedemann of the University of Southampton was part of the team that made that discovery. Jorg, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi there. It's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, why study corals in the Persian Gulf? What's unique about that region? The Persian Gulf is actually a wonderful natural laboratory because the corals there are experiencing temperatures which are predicted for other parts of the world for the next century. So if we want to get a better idea of what will be going on in other oceans, the Persian Gulf might be telling us already the future since the corals are experiencing the heat already there. Now, why is it that warmer than average ocean temperatures typically are a problem for corals and result in bleaching? So corals live together in a symbiotic relationship with this unicellular algae and they depend on their algal symbionts because they provide them with valuable nutrients and food. However, this uh, symbiotic relationship is very vulnerable and if temperatures exceed a certain threshold, the algal uh, photosynthesis is not working properly anymore and they produce some toxic compounds which results then in a breakdown of this symbiotic relationship and the algae are lost from the coral. So as a consequence, the white skeleton of the animal host, the coral, is shining through the tissue and that gives these corals the bleached appearance and that is actually a signal that they are severely stressed, they have lost their symbiotic partner and as a consequence they might actually die if they are not managing to recover their symbionts again. But you found this particular alga that can survive warm temperatures, at least greater temperature fluctuations than species known to be outside the Gulf. How is this alga able to do that? 
At the moment, we don't know yet how they managed to do it. The only thing that we know now, and this is very exciting, that this is a very new type of algae. And obviously, this algae is doing something very different from the algae in other parts of the world. And our future research will hopefully find out what uh, the mechanism is by which they manage to survive these extreme temperatures. What's the potential for this particular species of algae to live symbiotically with other coral species in other places, maybe places that are under stress because of warming ocean temperatures? Well, so the exciting finding about that is that corals obviously have more means to adjust to high temperature than we had previously thought. In the past, it was just one strain of algae which was made mostly responsible for thermal tolerance in corals. And now we suddenly know that there are even different species which could do that. So that means that the diversity of algae out there that could actually help corals to survive in extreme temperatures might be much bigger than we had previously thought. And when temperatures are rising in other parts of the ocean, these algae actually might take over and help the corals to become more temperature tolerant. However, um, while this gives hope that corals will adjust to the increasing temperatures of the future, one also needs to be realistic about that. And if we look at the Persian Gulf, so we find there about 68 coral species that can endure in these high temperature environments. And if you look in a more normal tropical environment in the Indo-Pacific, in a hotspot of coral diversity, you would find about 600 species. So obviously there are limitations to the adaptation potential of corals to these extreme temperatures. It does not mean that uh, rising ocean temperatures are nothing bad for corals because they can acclimate to a certain extent. In your work, what other stressors do you see besides heat that threaten coral reefs? Water quality plays a crucial role for coral survival and our recent work has shown that, for example, uh, nutrient enrichment of waters uh, in which corals uh, recede can actually lower the temperature tolerance. The temperature threshold at which corals can start to bleach and start to suffer is actually lowered. So this is something very important because that also gives possibilities to really actively promote coral reefs to become more resilient towards temperature increases. If we manage to get the water quality right in coral reefs, then they actually are more resilient towards temperature stress. So, Jörg, what's the message here? What's the message that this new finding sends us about the future of coral reefs? So what we can see is that coral reefs are by no way doomed. So corals try to fight back and they try to adjust to the changing environment and they have a higher capacity to do so than we had previously thought. But the important message is that this will not be enough. We need to support coral reef ecosystems in their struggle to adjust to higher temperatures and reduce the pollution of the waters to reduce overfishing and to keep them in a natural and good health. Jörg Wiedemann is a professor of biological oceanography and head of the Coral Reef Laboratory at the University of Southampton. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you very much for talking. It was a great fun. And now, algae's bad and ugly side, pond scum. It isn't just a summer nuisance. 
International research led from Canada suggests that blue-green algal blooms are growing more widespread around the world and could threaten our health. Indeed, last August, authorities in Toledo, Ohio, banned residents from drinking their water due to excess levels of a toxin produced by algae in Lake Erie. And some scientists are suggesting an association of the increase in blue-green algae with diseases ranging from liver tumors to Alzheimer's and other neurological disorders. Sophia Taranyu is a biologist at the University of Montreal and the lead author of a paper in Ecology Letters. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. So first off, what is blue-green algae? So blue-green algae, it's actually a bacteria that produces a blue-green pigment. More recently, we call them cyanobacteria. Huh. So why do we think that they were algae? Because they have a lot of the similar characteristics as algae or phytoplankton, but what differs is that they don't have membrane-bound organelles that would make them algae. So you looked at this bacteria to see how it's doing around the world. Tell me about your study. So the motivation behind our study was that there recently been an increased attention in the media and also people living around lakes that there was possibly an increased occurrence of these blue-green algae or these cyanobacteria in lakes. But we didn't know whether or not it was a true increase or if people were just paying more attention. And there's also the suggestion that we, with global warming and changes to the land use, that we're creating these opportune conditions for an increase in cyanobacteria. And so our study was really motivated to try and quantify whether or not cyanobacteria are increasing over time. And what did you find? So we found that over the past 200 years, cyanobacteria have been increasing significantly and that the increase was accentuated or accelerated since approximately the 1950s. And this coincided with the changes in modern agriculture, so the application of fertilizers, and also coincided with increases in the global temperature. Now, what do you suppose is causing this global rise all around the world in blue-green algae, or actually it's bacteria? Yeah. So what we found in our study, and it's been shown in lo- at local scales as well, is that the increase in fertilizer coming from the land into lakes is driving this increase. So cyanobacteria do really well when the concentration of phosphorus and nitrogen, these nutrients that we're applying on the land, are high, and they can outcompete phytoplankton during those conditions. Yes, I'm thinking the summer of 2014, uh, Toledo, Ohio, had to stop drinking water from Lake Erie because of a bloom like this. What happened there? That particular bay has a lot of agricultural land nearby, so there was more of a, a loading of nutrients that happened. And typically, cyanobacteria form these blooms or these scums on the surface water. And what happened in Lake Erie in 2014 was that there was strong winds that recirculated the blooms towards the bottom waters which is where the filtration plants take their water supplies. And so basically there was these toxic blooms that made their way into the water supply. So what are some of the impacts of cyanobacteria on our health? Some of them, not all cyanobacteria produce toxins, but when they do bloom, there's a higher occurrence of toxin being produced. And so in some cases, for example, there's been instances where livestock and pets that consume lake water that had blooms that were toxic died as a result. Typically, humans don't consume lake water that has blooms in them because it has a bad taste and odor problem. So there's no known reported deaths uh, for humans, but there's still that toxic effect. When we have in direct contact, we can have skin irritations or gastrointestinal discomforts from swimming in the water or being in contact with the blooms. 
more long-term effects could potentially be related to the fact that the most common cyanobacteria produce these liver toxins. So we can have liver tumors that could produce over a longer term scale, but this is still speculative. There's also been studies that have correlated whether or not residents live close to a lake and the occurrence of certain neurodegenerative diseases. This latter link is still uh, really controversial in the literature and something that I think we need to look into more closely in future years. The truth is we don't actually know if that link is present or not. What kind of neurological disorders are suspect? So some studies have linked it to ALS, for example, and they found that residents that live closer to lakes, there was a correlation or higher occurrence of ALS. But because it's a correlation, it doesn't imply causation. So there could be other factors, for example, living nearby agricultural fields that have fertilizer applications or being in a large city with other environmental issues that could be at play. So even though it's a correlation, we don't actually know if it's a cause. So ALS, what other disorders? There was one study, for example, in Guam and around 2003 that found a certain population that consumed bats that themselves consumed trees that had a symbiotic relationship that produced uh, cyanobacteria. And within these patients, they found symptoms that they said were descriptive of neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So that the symptoms were comparable and in the cerebral tissues of the patients that had uh, died of these neurodegenerative diseases, they found what they call a bioamplification of the cyanobacteria protein. But it, to my, the best of my knowledge, that's the only known case of this amplification. So what are the steps that you think we need to take to reduce the amount of the cyanobacteria in our waterways? The two dominant factors that we found in our study, the most important one was the loading of nutrients from agricultural land or the concentration of nutrients in lakes. There's also climate warmings. I think climate warming is a bit of a harder issue to tackle and people are trying to work on this continuously. The overuse of fertilizers in agricultural land is probably something that will be more easily tackled in future years because we're currently applying in about 70% of croplands across the world were applying phosphorus in excess of need. And so the quotas and the mitigation needs to be applied at that end, as we saw that as the primary driver of cyanobacteria. Zofia Taranyu is a biologist at the University of Montreal. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Zofia. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, losing ground in Louisiana and losing ice in the Pacific Northwest. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Louisiana is in trouble. The Mississippi River Delta is disappearing into the Gulf of Mexico at the rate of 16 square miles a year, some of the fastest land loss on the planet. These bayou lands are crucial to the nation's fisheries as well as regional oil and gas supplies, and ironically, activity by the energy industry is helping to destroy its own infrastructure. As a response, industry and government have created an unprecedented plan to save and rebuild these wetlands over the next 50 years at an estimated cost of some $50 billion. In a joint project with ProPublica, Bob Marshall, a reporter for The Lens, has co-authored an analysis of the plan called Losing Ground, Louisiana's Moonshot. 
What they're trying to do here has never been done before. They're trying to rebuild some of the wetlands that have been lost uh, and then to maintain that against all these unknown variables such as subsidence and sea level rise, lack of funding. So in a very real sense, it's as ambitious in those two areas as going to the moon for the first time. So how do you rebuild wetlands? What are the uh, methods that uh, the engineering crowd is saying are possible to use? Well, the area was built by the river, and that's the only chance to rebuild it, is to get that sediment out of the river back into these sinking basins in this part of the state surrounding New Orleans. The problem is, is that there's only about half the sediment in the river that it had when it built this area because of all the dams north of us. And the other problem is that the land is sinking at such a rapid rate. Many of these areas are already too deep and too large to be rebuilt. Bob, what are some of the specific projects associated with this plan? Well, marsh creation is the state's term for what I call slurry pipelines. They dredge sediment out of the river, pump it into some of the sinking basins, and just recreate these areas as they once were. Going forward, they hope to do this in areas of uh, 33,000 acres. And the diversions are basically recreating or mimicking the way the river built these deltas originally is, is the heart of this project because they can build land as long as the river is running. So that's why they're a key. Um, they're also doing lots of shoreline stabilization, and they're rebuilding oyster reefs to help protect uh, shorelines from wave action. There are also uh, different types of projects with levees. It's half of this $50 billion is going to be spent on structural protection for hurricane storm surge. And um, the cost of that has risen dramatically because the Corps of Engineers discovered during Katrina that its design parameters for building levees didn't work, so they had to increase them, and that's driven the cost up. Um, they're also doing research on how different plants will be impacted. You have to have the plants to hold the soils together. What will happen to the, the fish and the wildlife? And there are lots of variables and other concerns that they have to take into consideration, such as leaving enough water in the river for shipping, uh, not displacing communities that might be flooded by these projects, and trying to tend to the concerns of uh, fishermen and the oil and gas industry. Now, what kind of time uh, does it take to do these things? Well, this plan is a $50 billion, 50-year plan. According to the computer projections, if everything works according to plan and is implemented on time, they could actually be gaining more land than they're losing in aggregate by 2060. Problem is, <laughs> they don't have $50 billion. This has never been done before. And several of the projections out there are big concerns, such as sea level rise. So where are these projects uh, taking place? Where exactly? New Orleans is about 90 miles from the mouth of the Mississippi River, and most of these projects will be taking place in the stretch of river about 50 to 60 miles from New Orleans and south. The last 30 or 40 miles of the river delta is just being given up because it's sinking at such a fast rate, in some places five feet a century. So there's no hope of really saving those areas. So they're trying to rebuild these wetlands that are close enough to the city and its uh, suburbs and the smaller communities out there to provide some type of storm surge buffer as well as have a functional fishery. This is the most productive coastal fishery outside of Alaska in North America. 
and it's based on these wetlands. So talk to me about some of the challenges that the planners and engineers uh, might face in this project. Say locating a, a sediment diversion. First, they have to find out how much sediment and the right types of sand and sediment are going to be in the river at a certain location. And then, of course, can they get it to a basin that isn't already too deep and too wide to be treated? Then they have to figure out if it's in a stretch on the river where if they take water out of the river, it won't cause shoaling to the south and disrupt shipping. So, Bob, who's going to pay for this? So far... The state hasn't gotten much help from the federal government, except in the form of rebuilding the levees uh, that they didn't build properly around New Orleans, and that collapsed during Katrina. Congress, back in 2007, authorized about 27 projects that are part of this master plan, but they haven't funded any of them. And of course, they haven't shown any willingness. Uh, they're waiting to see how much money the state can gain from the uh, Deepwater Horizon settlements from BP. The state recently said they could maybe realize as much as 4 or $5 billion. If they don't find other revenue sources, they figure they'll probably run up against a financial wall in about 10 years. So right now, they, they really don't know. They're hoping that Congress will look at this and say, you know, this is an investment worth making because it pays for itself and its economic benefits to the country. What about the oil and gas companies who make a lot of money with the infrastructure that's there? To what extent are they investing on protecting, well, their own infrastructure? Well, they will tell you they pay uh, in excise taxes both to the federal government and to the state government. Those haven't been raised in some time. And the state will be getting a larger share of the offshore royalties that go exclusively to the federal government. They'll get a larger slice beginning in 2017 to the tune of about $175 million a year, depending on gas prices. And, of course, that fluctuates wildly. Uh, but the oil and gas companies have uh, contributed to things like PR campaigns and some individual projects. But as far as tapping into that financial resource to help pay for this, the state's political body, um, they want the oil and gas companies to willingly come to the conclusion that it's in their self-interest. Some would criticize this effort as saying, wait, we're going to spend a lot of money to protect private profits with public dough. It is a problem for the state. Other states look here and say, well, why should we help you if you won't help yourselves? I mean, the state's congressional delegation is also among the most aggressive in opposing climate legislation, carbon legislation. And of course, this area is one of the most endangered. In fact, NOAA says it's the most endangered large coastal landscape to sea level rise uh, in the country. So other states are saying, wait a minute, you know, you're like someone with lung cancer who wants us to help pay for the chemo but doesn't want to quit smoking. But down the road, if, if this isn't the number one issue for the politicians in this state, uh, I think there'll be another tremendous crisis here. There'll be a storm eventually that'll flood a bunch of these communities, knock out refineries, you know, expose or break lots of these pipelines, and then, you know, the nation will have to deal with that. I mean, that's pretty much... Historically, the way the country deals with these things, we, we kind of move forward by crisis rather than doing proactive things. Now, the fishing industry is also big uh, in this region. So what's their role in evaluating and modifying the master restoration uh, project plans? Well, you know, the wetlands here, the marsh, that is really the engine that drives fishery production here. 
but of course you need to rebuild what you're losing because once that base of habitat gets so small, production will fall off a cliff. The problem is, is that the people who make money off of fishing here, shrimp, finfish, crabs, oysters, have been making their fortunes on a system that has been gradually turning more uh, saline, saltier. So the people who, some of the fishermen, they don't like the idea of these big diversions being open because it will turn the water in their bays much fresher and it will displace many of their target species. And so they say, oh, I may have to go a lot further to catch fish or, or oysters or crabs or they may not be any. So they're looking for ways maybe of finding funding to mitigate the economic cost to some of these people if in fact they would be really hurt. No one's really sure if they would be that severely impacted. So uh, do the math for me. There's a projected cost of $50 billion. We know that these things end up costing a lot more at the end of the day. But what is the potential loss if this does not succeed or does not even start? Well, that's hard to say. I think, you know, 50% of the nation's refining capacity is along this coast. 30% of its total energy supply comes in pipelines from these 4,000 rigs offshore. Um, they'd have to start looking for ways to either relay these pipelines, move the refineries. And so as this turns to open water, they have to go somewhere or they have to be rebuilt and re-engineered at enormous expense. So it's quite the crisis that's fast approaching. People always ask me, are you optimistic this will get done? I'm optimistic it could be done, but I think the human element is much more, and the political element is much more of the variable that could kill the effort than overcoming the science and engineering part of it. But if, if they don't succeed here, then about a million people have to find new places to live. And one of the nation's key energy corridors could be disrupted or if not shut down. And uh, the port that serves 31 states would be in serious trouble. So, you know, the old cliche, failure is not an option. And the other thing here is that there's a deadline. If they don't get this done, in 50 to 60 years, they can't get it done, and there will just be this massive environmental evacuation, immigration from this part of the state north, finding homes for people and industries. Bob Marshall is a reporter for The Lens in New Orleans. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we stick with the watery theme, the frozen water, this time of the glaciers of Washington State. The Evergreen State has more glaciers than any other except Alaska. These ice fields are breathtaking to look at, exciting to climb, and a vital part of the water supply in the Pacific Northwest. But these days, they're melting away. From the public media collaborative EarthFix, Ashley Ahern has our story. Guess how many glaciers feed into the Skagit River? Just take a guess. Answer? 376. No joke. John Riedel is hiking up to one of them on the slopes of Mount Baker in Washington's North Cascades. We're headed up uh, along Rocky and Sulphur Creeks, and then we're going to turn and follow Rocky Creek up toward the terminus of Easton Glacier. Riedel's been studying glaciers with the National Park Service for more than 30 years. The sheer number of glaciers in this region sets us apart from the rest of the country, but it also makes us uniquely vulnerable to the effects of climate change. 
Glaciers are key contributors to drinking water supplies, hydropower generation, and salmon survival in the Northwest. Riedel pauses just shy of 4,000 feet elevation in the middle of a field of boulders, no glacier in sight. If you were here in 1907, you'd be looking right at the terminus of the glacier. And now where is it? Well, now it's around the corner. You can't see it. The terminus is closer to 4,400 feet and probably at least a kilometer at horizontal distance. Photographs from the 1800s show this whole valley covered in ice, but that's changing. Glaciers in the North Cascades have shrunk by 50% since 1900. Riedel says throughout history, glaciers have advanced and retreated over these mountains hundreds of times, but now it's different. The glaciers now seem to have melted back up to positions they haven't been in for 4,000 years or more. So we've kind of gone beyond that, I think that natural scale of variability. Glaciers provide billions of gallons of water to rivers in the Northwest, but it's not just about the supply. That water arrives when demand is high. Having glaciers provides stability to our water supply. So if you get into mid-late July and that snow is melted out of the mountains, uh, if it weren't for glaciers, our stream flow would drop pretty dramatically. So the glaciers are providing this meltwater at a time of year when we get no rain, when the snow's gone, in other words, when we need it the most. Perhaps no one understands that better than the people in charge of operating dams for hydropower. My name is Crystal Raymond, and we are at the base of Ross Hydroelectric Projects. Ross Dam towers 450 feet above us as we motor up Diablo Lake in Washington's North Cascades. Raymond works for Seattle City Light. The utility operates three dams on the Skagit River that provide about a quarter of the power for the city of Seattle. So we are unique. Um, there are not too many dams that operate in a place where um, some of the runoff coming into the project is coming from glaciers. At the hottest, driest times of year, glaciers are the biggest source of water for some of the streams that feed this hydropower facility. It's Raymond's job to figure out what to do when the glaciers are gone. She says Seattle City Light will need to change how it stores water above the dams, maybe expanding the reservoirs to capture more rainwater and save it for those late summer months. Helping customers cut back on energy use is also going to be key. By the time millennials are retiring, summer hydropower production in the Northwest is expected to be down by roughly 15 percent. But Raymond is an optimist. It isn't hopeless. There's certainly a lot of uncertainty. Um, but we know enough now to start getting prepared. And with time, we'll know more. But the sooner we start, the more likely we are to reduce the impacts. And there's no time like the present. <laughs> Several miles downriver from Ross Dam, Aaron Lowry scans the clear water for salmon nests, or reds as they're called. Right there, you can see the, the dark shape right there in the water so it's sort of near the edge of the red there and so that's a chinook salmon sitting on the red lowry is a fish biologist for seattle city light the utility is required to manage its dams to protect spawning fish too much water released from the dams and the reds will get washed away too little and they'll be left high and dry this mama chinook's tail is ragged and white where she's used it to shovel away the gravelly riverbed to make room to lay her eggs now she's guarding them She'll sit on that red and, and defend it until she loses energy and, and dies. And Aaron Lowry will do his best to defend her. He and his team record the location of the red and how deep the water is there. Lowry says glaciers aren't just important because of the water they provide in the summer. It's the temperature. Glacial melt flows into warming rivers like dropping an ice cube in a glass of lemonade. 
No glaciers means warmer rivers, and that's bad news for salmon. We start to affect not only the, the fish themselves, but it can have a negative effect on their eggs. But in rivers that are dominated, or at least have a glacier component to them, we see a reduction in temperature, which is key to cold water fish like salmon. Lowry says it hasn't come down to a choice between fish or power yet, but he loses sleep thinking about that possibility someday. As we move forward, I mean, it's going to be a, a pretty hard look at how we manage flows in the river with the changing climate, with a reduction in glaciers and snowpack, because people are moving to the Puget Sound constantly, and they're all going to need electricity. Scientists aren't sure exactly when the glaciers will disappear. It could be within a few decades. It could be by the end of the century. But when they're gone, they'll be missed. I'm Ashley Ahern on the Skagit River. Ashley reports for the Public Media Collaborative, EarthFix. There are videos of glaciers, salmon, and dams at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, a trip to the roof of the world, source of fresh water for more than a billion people. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Only the Arctic and the Antarctic have more ice than the glacial highlands of the Tibetan Plateau, earning it the nickname the Third Pole. The headwaters of some of the world's most powerful rivers, the Yangtze, the Yellow, the Brahmaputra, the Irrawaddy, the Ganges, the Mekong, flow from the high-altitude plateau into Asia, providing life-giving water for drinking, agriculture, fisheries, and recently, hydropower. That's the subject of a book from travel writer Michael Buckley called Meltdown in Tibet, which focuses on China's exploitation of the natural resources of the Tibetan plateau, especially water. He joins us from Singapore. Welcome to Living on Earth, Michael. Pleased to join you. So you started off as a travel writer. How did you get into political polemics? Well, it, it really started with a rafting trip. Um, I was on the Drigong River, just out of Lazar, and I'd never been on a river that powerful in my life. And I was told that this is just a pimple in terms of Tibetan rivers. This is nothing. But they're also talking about their biggest problem with the kayaking and the, raft, and the rafting is dams. And, you know, because they can't get around them, they, they get stopped by dams. And I, I say, dams? Well, wh which dams? And they said, well, they're all over, all over the place. And I said, well, wait a minute, I write a guidebook. I should know about this stuff. Can you tell me more? So we start listening to what they're saying. And they say, well, you think about it, it's quite logical. There are about a, a 10 major rivers that come off the Tibetan Plateau that originate within China. The rivers are the most powerful in the world. You've got the hugest hydro potential ever because you're starting on Himalayas, you're dropping three, 4,000 meters. So then I started uh, delving into it. That's where the thing got off the ground, really. When did China begin building dams on these rivers? Well, China's been gung-ho on dams ever since Mao Zedong came to power, but it was never on the Tibetan Plateau. It was always in the east. But the dam movement in China is expanding with no end in sight. See, they're really big on this green energy thing. They're saying, well, you know, coal is bad. 
although they're expanding into that too. But they're looking upon hydropower as being clean. And so what they're doing is they want to double the amount of hydropower by 2020. And the way they do that is they're looking at the rivers of Tibet because there's no, the rivers of China are thoroughly dammed. You can't dam them anymore. China has more dams than the rest of the world put together. So they're gradually working their way towards the Tibetan Plateau because they, they build dams in cascades. So they start off on the lower ground, and as they build upwards, they use the power from the other dams to complete the cascade because you need power to build more power. Uh, overall, what would you say is the impact of all these dams on the rivers? It's minimal for now, but it's going to get much, much worse because they've got some big dams coming up. We're not talking about small dams. We're talking about mega dams, which are defined as over 15 meters in wall height or a certain size reservoir. And these things, what they do, they stop the migration of fish, they stop the movement of fish, and they also stop the movement of silt. The silt carries rich uh, nutrients to the countries downstream. And if you don't have those nutrients, you've got to resort to fertilizers. So where is all the power going? What are the benefits to Tibetans from this? The Tibetans, these dams are not being built for Tibetans at all. I mean, you've got um, very low Tibetan population. It's always been low, and they're not involved in industry or anything. They're involved in agriculture or herding. So they don't need power, and they have their own source of power. They're for thousands of years, they've used the yak dung. That's all they need. You know, they stack up the yak dung. That's what they use for heating. That's what they use for cooking. That's what they use for everything, because there's very little wood on the high plateau. The dams are not for them. The dams are for the Chinese, for their industry, for the military. It's very big for mining. They need uh, dams to power mining, and mining is taking off on a very large scale now. Uh, talk to me about the mining projects that are going on there and the environmental impact of them. Yeah, basically, this has picked up a lot. It used to be small operations, like gold miners, uh, individuals, small groups, nothing major. And then along came the railway, which is um, from basically from Shining to Lhasa. So what's happening now is that you're getting very large-scale mining going on. And Tibet has huge reserves of copper, lithium, gold, silver, you name it. It's got a lot, a lot of stuff that's never been touched because the Tibetans never mined anything. It was against their, their religious practices to, to dig up anything. They didn't like disturbing the ground. I gather that there have been a lot of uh, land grabs for mining projects in Tibet. Yes, and um, this is a practice that's not only in Tibet, it's across China. And in the case of Tibet, they're taking over land in the grasslands especially, which uh, traditionally has been grazed by the Tibetan nomads. And they've just ripped up any contracts they've got with these people and said, well, no, your 30-year lease is not worth anything now. Move along. Just go and get settled in a house over there. In order to make the land grabs much more easy, they've declared these areas national parks. And this is the worst form of greenwashing you'll ever come across. Um, they declare a place to be a nature reserve, and they go and inform the Tibetan nomads, you're in a nature reserve, now you have to leave. And they say, but we've been here for thousands of years, hundreds of years. Well, that doesn't matter. And then as soon as they move out, they wait a little bit, and then along comes a mining company suddenly on the grasslands. But the, the, the thing where the Tibetans really object is when they start mining at sacred mountain sites. Every, you know, a lot of villages have their own sacred mountains, and if you disturb the spirits on that, it's very bad karma for them. They really do not like mining at sacred mountains, and there's a fair bit of that that goes on. Now, what's the status of, of wildlife there uh, in Tibet? Unfortunately, a lot of the wildlife has gone missing. There was a delegation that went in about 1980 from the government in exile, and they were shocked at the conditions of the people were living under, but they were also they were shocked by the silence of the grasslands. They did not hear the herds of 
animals that they would normally hear, you know, the, the wild asses, the wild yaks, the thundering hooves, and even the birds were missing. And they started looking around and they, they could not find any wildlife. And it was, it was gone, it was just decimated. And uh, we put this down to the military, the settlers, the Chinese settlers coming in. They would eat the uh, wildlife for, for meat or export it back to China. It was considered a delicacy. But back in the 1930s, the Tibetan Plateau, that was considered to be the Africa of Asia, you know, like the savannas. It was, it was lots and lots of wildlife up there, but it's all gone missing. How are the yaks doing? Well, the yaks are doing poorly. You've got two kinds of yaks. You've got the wild yaks, and then you've got the domestic ones. The wild yaks are very, they're almost double the size of a regular domestic yak, but there's probably fewer than a thousand left um, in Tibet. Thousands of years ago, the wild yaks were domesticated. They were tamed by Tibetan nomads to become the beast of burden for the plateau. They, they get everything from the yaks. Their object is to milk them, get the butter, cheese, whereas the Chinese attitude is a little bit different. They came along with this idea that you should make these yaks into meat where we can actually eat them. It's very alien to Tibetans, this idea. They don't like it at all. When the nomads are settled, uh, in order to make it a non-reversible process, the Chinese will take away the yaks and send them to the slaughterhouse. Because if they don't have yaks, they can't survive. Chinese policy is to get rid of every single Tibetan nomad in Tibet. They think they're very backward, they're barbarian. They shouldn't be there. They should be going to school. They don't have hospitals. You know, the list goes on. When you say get rid of, that sounds like genocide. It's a cultural genocide, you might call it. what the Dalai Lama calls cultural genocide, is that you're killing their way of life. You're killing their language. You're killing their culture. And I um, mean, they promise them schools. They promise them clinics. But these things often fail to materialize. And what, what you need to do with these nomads, if you're going to settle them, is you have to retrain them. Because otherwise, they have no skills. Their skill is survival on the grasslands. So they know how to do that very well. They've done it for centuries. But as soon as they settle into these houses, suddenly they have to pay for water. They have to pay for electricity. They don't have a food source. So they, they become nobodies, like refugees in their own land. Michael, where do you see all this heading? I mean, what chance do Tibetans have at slowing down the damming of their rivers, the mining of their mountains, the displacement of their nomads? Well, they, they're up against a military-industrial complex that whatever they try to protest, it will just be protested, squashed, and people are in prison, people disappear. Uh, I mean, there's been a number of demonstrations against mining where uh, Tibetans have been killed. Um, the only chance that you might have for stopping some of this damming, which has uh, happened in southeast, uh, in Yunnan, Sichuan, is Chinese groups. Uh, they don't like those dams either because they lose some of the best farmland around and they get shifted off to land which is not fertile. So it's not just Tibetans, it's of course Chinese uh, farmers and, and they've had mounted fierce protest in Sichuan and Yunnan and they've had some successes. So I think you know the only chance of really stopping activity like this lies with uh, Chinese NGOs and Chinese groups who've been very brave and managed to highlight the issues and managed to stop a few projects. Michael Buckley's new book is called Meltdown in Tibet, China's Reckless Destruction of Ecosystems from the Highlands of Tibet to the Deltas of Asia. Thank you so much. Okay, well, good talking to you, and uh, thanks very much. Among the many resources of Tibet is a fungus that Chinese medicine prizes as an aphrodisiac. It's been the target of collectors and speculators and the source of conflicts and even some deaths up in the fragile Himalayan grasslands. But one community in the highlands of Nepal has found a way to manage the harvest sustainably using cultural traditions, laws, and consensus. 
Jeff Childs is an anthropologist with Washington University in St. Louis who wrote in the journal Himalaya about the fungus called Yartsa Gunbu. Yartsa Gunbu in Tibetan means uh, summer grass winter worm. It's actually a caterpillar of the ghost moth which becomes infected by a fungus and in the springtime the fungus uh, shoots a stoma out of the ground which allows people to locate it in highland pastures. Generally it grows at 12,000 feet and above uh, and it's become very popular in Chinese herbal medicine for health, longevity, to boost the immune system. It's considered to be a libido enhancement, which is why some people like to call it the Himalayan Viagra. I gather it sells very well. It's extremely popular in China now, uh, to the point where in many rural areas on the Tibetan Plateau, gathering it has become the primary source of income for rural dwellers. So people are basically suspending all other activities in the months of picking, which generally come in starting in late May and run through June. Uh, and the whole family moves up to the high pastures to gather it uh, so that it can be sold to middlemen who take it to China. China, and that's where the market really takes off. So in general, how has it been harvested in recent years? People will basically crawl along the ground looking for it, and when they find it, they'll carefully dig it out with a spade or some digging implement and uh, remove it from the soil because you want it intact. You want the caterpillar body and the fungal stoma as well. That's where it's got the value. If it's broken apart, it doesn't have the same value. So they dig it out very carefully. And, you know, a good day, somebody can maybe find 20 to 30 of these. Uh, some people are adept and can find 100 or more. Wow. And each one of these is worth quite a bit. Yeah. Each one has uh, gotten from middlemen about 500 rupees. If it's really good, maybe 750 rupees. So five to seven and a half dollars, which in a place where there's very little income earning opportunities, that's a lot of money. What are the environmental impacts of all this harvesting? I mean, all these people running around uh, the hillsides there in the mountainous uh, Himalayas, uh, well, some of that's pretty fragile stuff. Yes, that's certainly going to have an impact, uh, and especially in those areas where they allow a lot of people to gather. Uh, number one, you are going to have people chopping down the juniper for fuel wood because they have to cook their food and keep warm, so there's going to be an environmental impact there. There's also a lot more people digging up the turf, which is uh, fragile, high-altitude alpine turf, so that will certainly have an impact. Now, you did much of your research in this small Tibetan uh, area called Nupri, and you say that they are doing things differently there. How so? Yes, correct. Uh, Nupri is uh, a valley in Gorkha district in the country of Nepal. The residents are ethnically Tibetan. They've been living there for about seven or 800 years, so it's an indigenous population of Nepal. Uh, what they have done in contrast to other areas is they've limited the number of collectors to only residents of the villages, and so that keeps the number of uh, collectors way down. Tell me how the community of Nupri uh, got its regulations uh, put in place. What they've arrived at in Nupri is a combination of what they call Yultim, which we could translate as village regulations, secular regulations, and Chutim, which are religious regulations. On the religious side, there's a long tradition of protecting the landscape through these sealing decrees. It's called a Shakya. What they will do is they will decree a certain areas off limits to human exploitation, and usually that's a sacred grove of trees, a certain slope of a mountain, 
notion that a deity inhabits or something like that. In terms of the village regulations, the first one that I just mentioned is the, uh, the, the exclusion of all outsiders. The second one is they've got a designated starting date, and they arrive at that by looking at the snow melt, looking at the conditions in the alpine pasture, and figuring out what's going to be the likely time when it's best to gather it. And so for a couple of weeks prior to the official starting date, every adult in the village has to check in four times daily to the uh, village meeting house to prove that you're not collecting early. A third thing that they do is they tax it. For the first member of your household, the tax is very low. It's 100 rupees or approximately $1. For every additional household member, it's 4,500 rupees, so about $50. And they gather that tax and use it for communal purposes. So how has the Yartsukumbu harvest uh, changed uh, the economics of Nupri? It's changed it tremendously. There's positives and there's negatives. Uh, the positives are people suddenly have money that they can use for their children's education. A lot of people are using it to send their children to boarding schools. Uh, they can improve their housing. I've seen a lot of improvements in local housing, upgrading the conditions of their housing. They can buy food with it. They don't produce enough food locally. They've had to trade various products uh, in the past to get enough food. Now they've got cash to purchase food. Uh, on the negative side, you can imagine that uh, people who have never had this type of income, when they suddenly come into money, it can cause a lot of social problems. So gambling and drinking are way up. There's also friction within families. Uh, younger members tend to take the income and go to the city and blow it all really quickly, whereas the older members want to conserve it and use it in a, in a, a way that benefits the family. So it is certainly improved their livelihood and their standard of living, uh, but of course it does come at a cost. So Jeff, uh, looking at this from a broader resource management perspective, what are some lessons that we can take away from what's happening in Nupri? Trust indigenous people. Uh, don't immediately assume that as outsiders with more education, we can come in and devise a system that will work for them. I think, first of all, study what's in place. Study it with an open mind uh, and uh, move from there. Jeff Childs is an anthropology professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today, Professor. Thank you for talking with me. It's been a pleasure, Steve. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Jenny Doring, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adlai Chen, Shannon Kelleher, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and John Duff. Our show was engineered by Jake Rigo with help from Tom Tiger, Noel Flatt, and John Jessup. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more, www.stonyfield.com. PRI.
Public Radio International.